Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, my name is Ellie Darkin and I'm an associate in the trade and manufacturing practice at Global Council. Today, we will be discussing vaccine rollout in Africa and whether an intellectual property waiver for vaccines will help or hinder efforts to vaccinate Africa and the wider developing world. Joining me today is Isabel Trick, Senior Associate in the Global Macro Practice and our resident Africa expert. Together, we'll be discussing the challenges facing vaccination efforts in Africa and some of the potential routes forward. In particular, we'll be discussing a proposal that has been presented at the WTO that seeks to waiver intellectual property rights for vaccines and other COVID-related medicines. So we'll do this by examining what the current intellectual property rules are at the World Trade Organization, what the proposal seeks to change, and then Isabel and I will examine some of the practical implications this will have on the very real constraints faced by companies and governments around the world at the moment. Um, thanks, Ellie. Yes, um, I've definitely been following this very closely, and I think a useful place to start might be with some numbers, just to give us a sense of scale. So in terms of total COVID doses given, and um, I'm leaving aside Australia and Oceania for now, Africa is by far the least vaccinated continent. So as of two days ago, the data I had is that Africa had administered 1.7% of all COVID doses globally. And that's despite being um, the second most populous continent with about 16% of the world's population. And that's such a stark contrast between a fair that the head of the WHO has recently called this vaccine apartheid. However, equally, almost all countries on the continent have now actually started vaccinating and some are actually doing it quite successfully. The Seychelles is one of the world's most vaccinated countries. Um, Morocco and Mauritius are doing pretty well. But on the other hand, the fact is that the overwhelming majority of African countries have vaccinated less than 5% of the population, and in many cases have vaccinated significantly less than even that. Okay, so thanks for that. That's been some useful framing with numbers. So in terms of the vaccines that are currently in the continent, where have they exactly come from? Um, there's essentially three main routes currently. The most significant, I would say, by far, is the International COVAX Initiative. That's the initiative which is led by the WHO and Gavi, which is an approach to equitable vaccine procurement and distribution across the world. Then the second path is procurement driven by the African Union, which has established a fairly successful vaccine acquisition task force and bilater bilateral deals with drug manufacturers. But I would say out of those three, COVAX is very much seen as the key pillar for vaccine access for most of Africa countries this year. And do you think this reliance on COVAX is an issue for, for Africa and in their vaccination rollout efforts? Um, absolutely. I think you've, uh, you've hit the nail on the head here for... Um, many African countries, COVAX is really the only way to have um, to get any vaccines into their countries right now. And it's a really ambitious undertaking and a very laudable one. And the idea is to provide um, about 600 million vaccine doses to, to the continent to vaccinate about 20% of the population this year, which should be enough to vaccinate all frontline health workers and very vulnerable people. They've actually recently increased their target to 30% and they've made deliveries to over 100 countries around the world. What is quite crucial is that the majority of those deliveries, however, were more in the hundreds of thousands of doses rather than in the millions. And I would say the key issue with the reliance on COVAX is that COVAX itself is really, really reliant on vaccines produced by the Serum Institute of India for all of its 2021 delivery plans. 
And India, as we have seen, they've stopped making deliveries to COVAX a couple of months ago. And they've just announced that essentially, given the severity of their own outbreak, they will pause experts on exports until at least the end of the year. So COVAX has been really hard to diversify their supply, but I would say for the moment, India turning off those vaccine tabs is, is a really big problem because African Union initiatives and the bilateral deals here, Africa really is at the back of the queue. There's a lot of talk about orders being placed, orders being secured, but the timelines really are very vague. They are usually towards the end of 2021. So COVAX was seen as the best solution for 2021. And here that global vaccine shortage is really a big problem for the continent. And I would say the key problem here is maybe that Africa doesn't produce any vaccines on the continent themselves. Okay, so in, in terms of diagnosing those problems, then it's about local manufacturing capacity, it's about a global shortfall in vaccine production, and it's also about the trade aspect of this, aka the export restrictions currently in place in India and in other countries. So given this, this backdrop of these kind of diverse range of, of issues facing the vaccine rollout in Africa, what do you see as the key potential routes forward? Uh, great question. I think one of the most obvious suggestions that we've seen being made is that richer countries should share their surplus vaccines. So in the early rush to secure enough vaccines, a lot of countries, and the UK included, but lots of countries in the developed world, they bought more vaccines than they need to vaccinate their own citizens, um, even given a two-dose regime. And I think there's really been a push in the last couple of weeks to realise we need to do something with those doses. France has just announced that they will be sharing, I think, about half a million vaccines with COVAX. Sweden will be sharing a million. Spain and New Zealand have made firm commitments. The US is talking about possibly donating, I think, up to 80 million doses. It's not quite clear to whom, but some at least should be going to COVAX. And the EU has said they will try and donate 100 million doses. And there's other countries, including Canada and the UK, which do have significant surpluses and they seem open to it, but haven't yet made clear um, donation commitments. I would say another option forward that especially the EU has thrown um, a lot of weight behind recently is to support building up local manufacturing capacity and generally increasing funding for vaccine purchases for Africa. And maybe on the trade aspect that you mentioned, I think for global vaccine manufacturing, it's really, really crucial that we're keeping supply chains open, that we're keeping all inputs flowing without restrictions. But maybe turning this around slightly and turning it on to you, because another proposal that has recently been gaining a lot of traction has been floated by South Africa and India, the World Trade Organization, and it's about this waiver of intellectual property rights for COVID vaccines. So you've been following this quite closely. Maybe you can explain to me a bit better what does this proposal entail and why have we been hearing so much about it in the past few weeks? Sure. So this IP waiver proposal is something that we've been following at GC very, very closely. Um, and I think to frame a bit about the proposal, it's probably important to start with the basics. So uh, with that in mind, intellectual property and IP rights in general were brought into the global trading system as far back as 1995 when the WTO was first established. And in particular, they were enshrined in an agreement called the Trade Related Aspects of Intellectual Property or the TRIPS Agreement um, that had been signed a year earlier in 94. And this, is, this established a really baseline rule for all WTO members that they have to offer at least 20 years of IP protection from the time that a patent is filed um, for patent holders. So this has been enshrined for almost three decades now in the international global trading system. And last year in October, India and South Africa approached the WTO with quite a radical proposal to change these intellectual property rights. 
Essentially, what they want to do is waive IP rights and protections for all COVID-19 related products. So this is not just vaccines, but it also includes therapies, diagnostics and things like personal protective equipment. And by waiving those intellectual property rights, what we really mean is that they're removing the IP protection from them in the forms of patents, copyrights, trade secrets, and even things like protections for industrial design, so that these protections do not inhibit a generic manufacturer from making that product. So the proposal has now been essentially co-sponsored by about 60 developing countries, and it's gained a lot of traction in the WTO over the last, um, you know, six months or so but recently it has shot into the public headlines and the public sphere because the US has changed its position of um, opposition to the waiver so the US had originally been opposing this alongside the EU the UK Switzerland Japan and other kind of developed developed areas of the world um, and on the 5th of May Catherine Tai, the US trade representative, made a quite a shocking announcement to come out and say that the US would actually back, not necessarily the original proposal to waiver IP protection for all COVID-19 products, but specifically to waive IP rights for COVID-19 vaccines for a time limited period. So this surprising move was made um, on, against the backdrop of a wave of media attention that swept the US um, in the in the the weeks and days running up to the 5th of May, where we saw a lot of attention from the media connecting the dots between the current crisis, um, the explosion of the Indian variant in India and in other parts of the world, and the HIV crisis, which obviously took hold of Africa uh, several decades ago. Um, and against this backdrop, there was also a lot of concerted lobbying efforts from progressive Democrats um, in obviously the Democratic Party in the US. And this all kind of came together in a perfect storm that forced the Biden administration's hand to an extent. And they came out in support of this waiver at the WTO. Uh, that clearly is a really radical proposal, but what I'm not quite certain on, and maybe you can help me understand, is how this IP waiver, which has been causing the storm, is different to um, the voluntary licensing agreements that some pharma companies already have with um, vaccine manufacturers, for example, the Serum Institute of India, and they're already making vaccines developed by other vaccine companies or by other pharmaceutical companies. And you touched on that. Could you help me understand how that is different or similar to what happened two decades ago in Southern Africa with regards to the HIV and AIDS drugs? Sure. So I think when it comes to thinking about licensing and waivers for intellectual property, it's probably important to think about them in three basic categories. The first is voluntary licensing. So voluntary licensing is essentially whereby an innovative pharmaceutical company voluntarily enters into a partnership with another manufacturer and allows them to share their patent and to produce the, the product accompanied by often the technological transfer and capacity building and a share of know-how to ensure that the partner company is producing the drug or the product to the right standard of safety and efficacy. And in this situation, through a voluntary licensing agreement, the innovative company is, of course, still remunerated, um, but they are agreeing to essentially share their patent rights with their partner. This is different to the second pillar, um, which we can think about in the in, especially in the context of um, you know making the link back to South, Southern Africa and the HIV/AIDS crisis several decades ago, which is compulsory licensing. 
Now, compulsory licensing, as the name might suggest, is different to a voluntary licensing agreement because the innovative pharmaceutical company is essentially forced to share their patient rights with a partner manufacturer. Um, and this is their hand is forced in this situation by the government in that country in a time of emergency, but they are still remunerated for their sharing of their patent. This is, of course, very different to an intellectual property waiver that's currently being proposed at the WTO, whereby there would be no remuneration for the innovative company. And there would you were essentially taking all those intellectual property rights and patents and discarding them in the context of releasing the, the IP and making it available to absolutely anyone who wishes to make this drug. So I hope that has clarified some of the differences right. between voluntary and compulsory and IP waivers. Yes, absolutely. And I think that really helps me understand why there has been so much opposition to this by pharmacy companies, by pharma companies, because, of course, that innovation is difficult to put um, a price tag on. But of course, that is what we're doing. And to think about giving up all remuneration for something that was very difficult to develop, I can see why that's being quite, quite heavily opposed. But leaving that to one side. Do you think that kind of waiver would actually work? A really interesting way to think about this is when we compare the issue of um, getting access to drugs during the HIV AIDS crisis and getting access to vaccines in the context of COVID is that there are two very different drugs in consideration. During the HIV AIDS crisis, antiretroviral therapies were produced by pharmaceutical companies and access to them was materially limited by patent protections, which meant that generic manufacturers who were standing ready in countries like South Africa were unable to produce said drugs due to the patent protections on them. Today's context is very different. This is because the vaccines that are developed to tackle COVID-19 are not just chemical compounds. They're, they're not made from chemical molecules, which are essentially, you know, quite easy to replicate by generic manufacturers. Manufacturers, They are complex biological products. So if we think about the mRNA vaccines, for example, there's actually, there's, you know, there's genetic code in there that has to be synthesized and replicated through a really complex biological process, which then in and of itself has to be suspended in lipids and so forth. So the process for manufacturing a vaccine like this is extremely complex and it's much more difficult than, than simply reverse engineering a chemical compound as with the antiretroviral drugs um, that were needed to treat the HIV AIDS pandemic. So what we're seeing is a genuine scarcity of manufacturing capacity, especially in the African continent, um, to be able to produce these vaccines. And uh, this is, you know, as many are, are kind of pointing out, this is the real blocker to access at the moment for um, for vaccine access and production, as opposed to the patent protections that are, are keeping those um, rights to produce the drug in the hands of the innovative pharmaceutical companies. Right. Um, I don't think there, there are many people, even in the most optimistic pockets of Africa, that would argue that Africa will start producing COVID vaccines tomorrow, even if we would waive IP rights today. As you said, there clearly are a lot of challenges. But equally, there definitely are some African countries that would be better placed than others. For instance, I would say Egypt, Morocco, Senegal, South Africa and Tunisia all have some existing manufacturing know-how. And I saw that a few weeks ago we had an announcement that Egypt will actually start to locally manufacture um, China's Sinovac vaccine from June. 
Well, equally, I think it'd be interesting to challenge the point that I've heard a lot in news coverage, that it's essentially not worth pursuing the IP waiver because it can't be done in Africa. But even if pharmaceutical companies in Africa might not be able to produce this, aren't there other pharmaceutical companies outside of Africa that could start manufacturing COVID vaccines thanks to the IP waiver? And that would then still mean that we have more vaccines out there for initiatives like COVAX to, to buy and distribute. Yeah, I, so I think you're absolutely right to broaden this discussion out from focusing exclusively on Africa and their manufacturing capacity, because an IP waiver would apply broadly across the world and, you know, companies in, in any corner of the world would, in theory, be able to produce this vaccine. I mean, what the difficult thing when it comes to this debate is that we don't know, as it stands, exactly what the global landscape looks like in terms of manufacturing capacity for the various COVID-19 vaccines. And I think this, of course, has to be a first step, perhaps before considering you know, a proposal like waiving intellectual property rights, is there needs to almost be um, you know, a global audit of manufacturing capacity and capabilities across the world. And then there needs to be some serious projections about how quickly it would take to ramp up production in those facilities should intellectual property um, rights be waived or you know, compulsory licenses granted. And whether the timelines involved in ramping up that capacity would be you know, quicker than, let's say, ramping up capacity within the existing innovative pharmaceutical company's own remit. And I think there needs to be some careful calculations about that. Um, but going back to the point that you made earlier is about regarding the, you know, the Serum Institute of India and, and, their, um, and how they were donating many of their vaccines to COVAX. If we're, if we're going to consider a, an, a waiver or any kind of amendment to intellectual property rights that would allow vaccines to be manufactured in one part of the world and exported to another, we need to keep very, very focused on this issue of keeping supply chains for vaccines open and trade in vaccines as easy as possible. And by that, I mean, we need to be looking and tackling the issue of export restrictions on vaccines. And that's not something that is exclusive to India. It's something that is, of course, in place in the, in the EU and in other countries around the world. And we also need to be thinking about sometimes the, the kind of less, the less interesting and the slightly more boring parts of trade, which people, which don't tend to, to capture public headlines, which are about, you know, facilitating customs processes, at the border to make sure that important kits, vaccines, and, you know, all the related instruments um, for research and development and manufacturing do not get held up at the border and are safely delivered to the manufacturing facilities um, to speed up the manufacturing process. And also doing things like making sure that the regulatory capabilities in these jurisdictions are as robust as possible and that, you know, greater regulatory capacity in a jurisdiction means that there is a greater chance for alignment with regulatory processes with others through processes of mutual recognition or equivalence frameworks, which essentially means that, you know, one country A can recognize the capabilities for regulation in country B. And as a result, companies face less bureaucratic processes um, and administrative regulatory requirements when operating in the other jurisdiction as a result of there being a basic standard of regulatory alignment between them. So I think we really need to, you know, go beyond the big flagship and um, proposals like IP, which, you know, as we've 
been discussing today are not necessarily a silver bullet which would start increasing access to vaccines tomorrow and look into the slightly more boring side of trade and, and see how we can actually facilitate those supply chains and vaccines, how we can keep trade flowing and how we can make sure that where vaccines are produced, whether that's in India or the EU or the US or wherever, that they are getting to other parts of the world as quickly and as easily as possible. Absolutely. I think, yeah, very well made points. If you excuse me, I'll go back to one slightly more of the headline grabbing questions, even though mm -hmm. we just very convincingly argued that it's important to look at this as a big picture um, question, and we really should. But just finally, what actually do you think is the road ahead for the IP waiver proposal? Is it actually going to happen? Uh, yes. So when it comes to the current state of play with the IP waiver, well, as I was discussing slightly earlier, you know, the US throwing its weight behind uh, a form of IP waiver proposal, which would waive protections for vaccines only. It's really changed the negotiating backdrop for this proposal at the WTO. It's kind of trans transcended what was originally this developed versus developing country divide at the WTO and has really raised the political capital for countries who had originally opposed the waiver to stick to their positions. So I think we're going to see a very complex negotiating um, backdrop at the WTO. And I think what we'll likely see is different forms of this intellectual property waiver proposal ping-ponged back and forth at the TRIPS Council, so that's the trade-related aspects of intellectual property council, um, which will deliberate through text-based negotiations right up until the ministerial conference at the end of the year, so that's at the end of November, beginning of December at the WTO, where we'll likely see uh, the WTO Director General, Dr Ngozi Okonjo-Awela, pushing and really pressuring countries um, and WTO members to come to some kind of agreement on the waiver by that date. I'm not saying that this agreement on the waiver is going to be a positive one. I think that there's lots of opportunity ahead of uh, the end of the year for this waiver to essentially become deadlocked and there to be a loss of public interest in it, especially if genuine efforts to ramp up manufacturing capacity and improve um, production rates and vaccination rollout across the developing world and across the world you know in general if they bear fruit and if we genuinely see an uptick in, in vaccinations across the world there could be you know we could really see this kind of debate fade and we could see this issue become much less contentious at the WTO because it's simply not seen as as the solution anymore alternatively I think you know a lot can happen between now and December one of the things that could happen is that we could see a proliferation of new variants of the of the virus, as we've seen in India so far. Um, and that's going to really focus minds on the fact that, you know, this this old trope that no one's safe until everyone's safe. Um, and the issue that it's not just an issue of the developing world or a particular country if a new variant breaks out, but it's actually, you know, it could put the whole world once again on the back foot in the face of the fight against this virus. And, you know, I think as the situation becomes more radical and the sense of emergency grows, the solutions and the proposals in the face of this threat can become more radical as well. So I think the trajectory of this proposal, this particular proposal at the WTO, will very much depend on the, the, on the situation on the ground in many developing countries about whether the vaccination rate is increasing and manufacturing capacity is ramping up, or conversely, whether continues to stagnate, whether COVAX continues to experience troubles and shortages and a slow rollout, 
um, and whether we see new variants of the virus pop up around the world. So from your perspective, Isabel, what do you think? Um, so this is, you know, I'm obviously very focused on what's going on at the WTO at the, at the moment and what the prospects are for this waiver. But in terms of what's going on in the ground in Africa, how, how do you think the, um, the vaccine rollout and this debate on IP and so forth will really impact the political and economic landscape of the, com of the continent? I can echo um, a lot of the things you've already said. And I think if we get to the COVAX target of vaccinating 30% of populations in poorer countries globally by the end of the year, I would say that's a huge success. I think we're currently fairly far away from that and we would need serious improvements along the lines of what we've discussed to achieve that. If we fall short of this, I think the vaccination gap remains quite, might remain quite wide between rich and poorer countries. As you mentioned, that would obviously have an impact on our global ability to effectively fight, um, fight COVID, but it is also going to damage the economic recovery prospects in the countries that are being left behind. So what I really hope is, again, just to echo what you said, is that this discussion about the waiver, whether the waiver passes or not, might hopefully galvanize this debate and lead to, as we've already seen, more donations, either directly from countries or even from pharmaceutical companies. I saw an announcement coming out of the Health Summit in Rome last week that one pharmaceutical company is considering donating or making available two billion doses to developing countries in the next 18 months. And hopefully we can also use this to really act as a catalyst to work on boosting vaccine manufacturing capacity in Africa more generally, not just for coronavirus, which may still be helpful for booster shots, but also for the future more widely, for example, for a malaria vaccine when that becomes available. So hopefully this can be a force for good that works towards making vaccine access more equitable. Okay, well, I think that's a, that's a good optimistic note to end on. So as always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to or engaged in this debate on vaccines, rollouts, intellectual property rights, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can find the contact details for myself and Isabel and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.globalcouncil.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for listening and we hope to keep in touch. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.